Hey guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Eric Helms back on the show. It's been way too long since we've spoken, so I catch up with Eric, talk about what he's been up to, what his next competitive endeavors are going to be, and then we talk about some of the new literature that's come out regarding different ranges of motion and maybe stretch-mediated hypertrophy and what does that practically mean for trainees and what might we want to take away from some of that research. And as a reminder, we do offer online coaching here at Revive Stronger. We have a team of great coaches. So if your goal is fat loss, muscle gain, you're looking to step on stage or just go for a photo shoot, we're here to help you. So definitely check out that if you're interested. It'll be linked in the description. But without further ado, let's get into the show with Eric. Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall. And today I have Eric Helms. Who is this guy? He's back on the podcast. If you've been listening to podcasts in general in the fitness space though, and uh, this one for long enough and just been in the natural bodybuilding scene, you'll know who Eric Helms is. as a terrible joke. It's just been a while since me and Eric have spoken one-on-one like this and he's been on this podcast and too long. And uh, I need to be better at <laughs> making myself wear my blue light blockers like uh, Eric said and I put my <laughs> red specs on and uh, it's been two years I couldn't quite believe it when I look back I was like it was episode I think 175 and we're reflecting upon your 2019 season Eric so that must feel like an age away for you like when you competed back then well let's just put it this way it's long enough that I've forgotten the trauma of contest prep and I'm considering competing again so <laughs> it's been a while <laughs> no but seriously it's it's an always an honor to be back on and it's a uh, it's a, it's a travesty and it's been two years since we've talked, man. So we need, I, I was just saying as well, like the, the round tables we did with Menno, Mike and Eric for me were some of the best episodes we've done. And I, I want to get something like that going again. I'm like, need something that I don't want to go into like some really, really niche topic. That's not going to have any like helpful practical take homes with those, because when we get you three there, I want it to be like, I don't know, a very powerful uh, message again, but I have to have a think about that. And uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely a travesty. And talking about actually, I wanted to, I haven't heard uh, from you in terms of when you're looking to compete again, how you're training, everything's going. I uh, haven't seen you sharing that as much on your story of like you actually were, in a, you were doing that a lot with your powerlifting and uh, kind of in your home gym. But how, how's that all going for you, Eric? Well, as you know, if you don't record your training session, it doesn't actually do anything to your body. So training's been going terribly uh, because it's not, doesn't exist with no video. Uh, no, but in all seriousness, I've, yeah, I don't know what it is. I kind of, um, I've just fallen off with doing my stories or regularly training. And I think sometimes when I record my training, it takes me out of my training a little bit. So, um, it's probably a good sign when you see me not recording it at all. Cause it means I'm very focused on it, uh, or incredibly depressed and you won't know which cause I'm not sharing. But, uh, lately the good news is that I have been very focused on training I am planning on competing in 2023. Um, I know I look like I'm 24, but I'm actually turning 40 <laughs> in uh, in 2023. So I thought that'd be a really cool milestone to compete on my 40th birthday. But it also just worked out. You know, it's been it'll be four years since my last competitive season, and I think that might be enough to make some significant progress. My training at the moment has really shifted away from a lot of the strength goals that I was pursuing after my last contest prep through. Uh, 2020 and 2021. Um, and I've been very focused on bodybuilding as of late with um, most recently for the last, since August 1st, actually, I started fresh that month 
on a specialization program where all five days that I train, I start with four sets on a shoulder uh, exercise, a back exercise, and then uh, a calf exercise just to see if those muscles actually grow, the last one. But uh, for the first two, yeah, I'm actually just really trying to, um, I guess you could say, cater to my structure. As someone who has a small rib cage and kind of narrow clavicles, I'll never be able to change that. But if I have, you know, wider lats and more medial delts, I can try to, you know, hide that a little bit and, and try to kind of bring up my overall uh, symmetry, I guess, and proportionality. And then, you know, I've got really long uh, tibia. So just trying to maybe make my calves grow slightly closer to my heels so that there's just not that kind of like five minute space, like the beginning of Star Wars, where you're trying to look up <laughs> until you finally see a muscle on my body. But uh, yeah, I'm working on it. So it's fun. Maybe we can like uh, uh, partition for wearing long socks on stage or something. Or <laughs> that always seems to help. I'm like, that helps the illusion, the long socks. <laughs> 100% it does, bro. When I wear socks that stop at the end of my calves, like, oh, that guy's got some pretty good calves. Like, what have you been doing lately? And I'm like, uh, you know, wardrobe change and nothing else. So. <laughs> I'm the this is why I partly I, I didn't think it would work so well the fact that you've been kind of specializing on not not so much the calves that wasn't but I I said to Eric I wanted to talk about lats and uh, medial delts because mm -hmm. they're two areas that I particularly have been focusing on um, more so my quads than uh, my kind of my lats as such uh, but that's because for me I'm, I'm kind of similar in terms of I have a wide or I have a wide waist and not very wide shoulders so kind of bringing up the medial delts to help that symmetry is just like so important so it's mm. interesting to know that that's what you're doing and also I, I had this discussion just yesterday with Pascal talking about when you're advanced and you're near your genetic ceiling kind of it makes sense potentially to compete more often but also you have that kind of double-edged, uh, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, double-edged sword of it takes more time to actually make changes. So it's like you want to wait yeah. to, to come back to stage. So uh, four years, yeah, you'd hope that's enough time to make substantial changes. And I know you have, uh, what, uh, let the listeners know what your goals, because I know you didn't quite get to uh, your competitive goals last time. Yeah, the, the good news is I have a healthy layer of intrinsic goals, which we actually have uh, research if uh, you ever want to look into goal setting, behavior change, and athlete satisfaction, uh, that your intrinsic motivation is actually the, by far the most important thing that predicts success and behavior and, and actually longevity in sport. So I've got a lot of intrinsic motivation of just to be better and to maximize my own personal potential. But that's not at the expense of not having extrinsic goals. And I absolutely want to get my WNBF pro card. And that is something that I tried to take some well I did take some shots at it in uh in in 2019 and I did pretty well um I placed second or first in all the shows I did uh unfortunately the shows where I placed first didn't have sufficient competitors to to get a pro card uh and um in the shows where I placed second uh they did but I just wasn't good enough so <laughs> the yeah that that has actually kind of been uh something that that stopped me from, from continuing to compete in 2019 and going all the way to worlds is the judges feedback I was getting and just looking at who was beating me it wasn't like I needed to be more conditioned I thought I did a pretty good job with with conditioning and peaking and presentation uh, but just needing to be you know bigger and more bodybuilder looking like I had um, one of the judges actually when I was training the morning after uh, my show in April that I did in Hawaii which was a lot of fun um, she was, you know, in the hotel gym as well. And she was like, oh, hey, I really liked, you know, I said, thanks for judging. And she gave me some props. And she said, you know, to be honest, 
I think you would already be pro and be very competitive if you were in the uh, the men's physique division. And I was like, I was gracious. I thanked her and I said, but I'll be honest, I'd rather play second <laughs> in bodybuilding than, 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 than turn pro and compete in men's physique because it's just not where my heart is, you know? Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I'm, 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 I'm among the people who may not have the chassis for it, but it's going to see how far I can take it. And hopefully 2023, um, I'll be able to, to clinch a, a, a pro card. But uh, ultimately, so long as I improve, like you said, it's that thing where you're, when you're more advanced, you certainly have the behaviors and the psychology uh, to be able to compete more frequently. And, you know, you have the right kind of attitude and uh, sustainable methods in the off season, hopefully to where, you know, getting into striking distance isn't a problem and the recovery phase isn't, isn't too harsh. Um, each time I've competed, I've gotten better at that, that transition. So I do think I, I could compete more frequently, but I think halfway through each prep, I'd just be like, why am, why am I doing this? I look the same, you know? So I, it's not very motivating to go through the very grueling and uh, intensive process um, and rewarding process if some of the rewards aren't there, you know, where you can actually look and be like, oh shit, like some of the, I, I set I set this, you know, multi-year plan or if it, I guess you're competing really, really, really frequently, a single year plan or something like that. And it didn't pan out. So I think for me, for me to be motivated to compete I have to feel like at this stage of my career and my age currently, uh, an important part of that uh, mental reward is thinking I've got a good chance at, at seeing the fruits of my labors. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I didn't realize how much I just completely align with all your kind of values and the way you view it. Because, And I, again, it's like we're talking off air how I very much like to think I kind of built Revive Stronger to to kind of emulate a lot of the things 3DMJ do because I think you're doing it very, very well. And you've had such longevity and success in this industry for those reasons. But also my own like bodybuilding endeavors and career, how much my thoughts have been influenced by you because I don't know if, if I thought differently to how you're viewing your bodybuilding career. I don't know if I'd still be doing it. And I think that would be a, a damn shame for me because I get so much value out of doing the thing, uh, even though similar to yourself it's not like i'm going to jump on stage and be guaranteed a pro card anytime i'm going to have to like fight tooth and nail and probably have a bit of luck and be very consistent for like nearly probably two decades to try and kind of grab one of those myself and ultimately once i've got it i'm not sure it will really change anything to be honest apart from maybe i can put it in my kind of bio or something <laughs> the, oh my god the sponsorships you're gonna have <laughs> uh the money Rolex is going to come knocking, or at least you might occasionally get like free protein bars, dude. It's going to be life changing. So I'll tell you what. And, and it's nice also for someone of your level of success in the industry, but not necessarily having like the wild competitive su success. Not that you're a bad competitor by any means, similar to like, I don't, I'm not a bad competitor. I might look at myself like I'm not all that. And you probably are the same with yourself, but like you're a very good competitor, but not like, you don't have to be this like, I don't know, freak and what have you. You're in here educating people to be better. And actually, I imagine part of you being not that elite has uh, having those freak genetics has helped you be even better at doing that too. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing I've reflected on in like, uh, how do people get fulfillment from being involved in a community? And it's very rare that people who stick around and really get a lot out of a sport at any level. Like sometimes you see champions burn out and leave. They don't have any other way of feeling fulfillment in the sport. 
So when when people are coaches, maybe they're they're judges or referees as well, uh, they're content providers, they're trainers, and they're athletes. You find that they can weather the storm much better when one of those things isn't going well. Like an injury is not as big of a deal because um, when you think about self determination theory, right? Like, yeah, that's probably going to suck for like your your autonomy. You know, you're you're not going to be able to feel like you have the choice to compete, but it's you're still going to have that relatedness component, and you're still going to be able to express you know competence and uh, through through your knowledge through helping others, you'll be able to get that that similar kind of passionate fulfillment of seeing your, your athletes compete or your colleagues compete, you know, and I think you'll stay nice and connected to the sport. And that's, that's something that I've definitely benefited from. And I think when you're, when you're, when your success rides on just being an athlete in any sport, um, it puts a lot of additional pressure on you that I think is hard, harder to navigate, you know? And, um, you know, I, I don't know if it's, it's hard to say. I don't have another version of myself, but I think there are some benefits to not being that good. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's easier to know when something works too. Cause I yeah. don't have, you know, I didn't have a robust, you know, response after like my intermediate phase or anything like that. Um, and I also don't get kind of lulled into complacency with doing something that works despite it not being that, you know, that effective in the grand yeah. scheme of what it could be for me. Absolutely. And um, actually on this, well, this is going to be the topic, the main topic of the podcast was, and it kind of probably relates to your training in that I wonder if any of the the recent research that's come out, because there's been a ton of papers, like I was just doing research and digging through them all, because I kind of, I see them coming through on like mass and you guys are re- re- uh, reviewing them and they get posted out like by Brad Schoenfeld and different individuals and everyone's talking about these these studies, lots of them relating to potentially kind of different stretching protocols. So like interset stretching or like I was going to joke about the calves, just like strap yourself into a device for an hour a day for six weeks. Maybe you're doing it. He's doing it on the, the side, aren't you, Eric? So uh, are you actually? <laughs> you, you, you joke, bro, but I, I, I tried. So <laughs> okay. that, that, you know, that paper that came out, I think it was by a German group, if I recall correctly. It was by uh, Warnicke. I'm probably not pronouncing that right. Warnicke, yeah. It, yeah, 2022. And and for the listener who doesn't know what the hell we're talking about, it was this cool study where they used like this orthotic device to put the calf into, you know, plantar flexion for like, what is an hour a day? I can't quite remember off the top of my head. I have the study pulled up if you ask me about it, so we're good. But anyway, <laughs> they used a orthotic device to keep them stretched for a good portion of time, and there was some pretty impressive growth in the calves. So the first thing I did when I saw the study, which was me peer reviewing, you know, Greg writing about it in mass, was I found the corresponding author. Just just it goes to show that I'm a bro more than a scientist, no matter how far I take academia. And I was like, hey, uh, just wondering, how did you source that orthotic device? Do you have any contacts? <laughs> Would be great to hear from you. Just interested in potentially using it. And, uh, and I never heard back. They, they oh, probably no. were like, I don't speak English. So that's what I suspect is that maybe the, the corresponding author, maybe not wasn't, wasn't an English speaker, but yeah, if, if you're out there, Warnicky, I'm still waiting on your response, please <laughs> don't keep the calf gains all to yourself. That's all. Oh, so. Yeah. I think it was, um, six weeks, one hour a day and they saw 15% or some people saw 15% increase in their calf. And I'm just like. I, don't know, I haven't seen 15% increase in my car for like the last number of years. I'm spending, investing probably just as much, uh, I don't know, six weeks. Well, in six weeks, way less, t- way less time than what I've invested yeah, over the last man. years. So I Granted, just don't know if, you know, there wasn't like a resistance training control. So I, and like, sure. but I was still excited about it just because it's a mechanism yeah. that, you know, I, I haven't done it. I would feel like there's some novelty and un- untapped gains there. So 
Um, and it's really hard just to keep yourself stretched for like an hour while you're like watching television. But if I can just get a little device, whoo, Steve, I'm telling you, <laughs> I want to get those calves. If I, it's, Warnicky is holding me back. That's what it is. If, if I get judges feedback in 2023 that my calves are not big enough, I'm just going to say, you know what? You talk to that guy. It's not my fault. All right. <laughs> we'll have to get Pascal to get in touch. He's got the German the German touch there. He'll be able to hook you up, hopefully. Yes. Yes, please. And I guess that interestingly relates back to those old bird studies where they would weight down the wings and they saw like crazy growth. Um, it's kind of a, a bit similar to that. But yeah, so there's the, the stretching studies and then there's been kind of training at different muscle lengths, whether or not that's kind of partials or you're using different exercises like the seated leg curl versus the lying leg curls. And then the partials with like the preacher curls and the, like, the lengthened position, the shortened position and all of this. And so I, I don't know if any of this kind of recent research relating to, I guess it's related to potentially stretch mediated hypertrophy, which has always been that kind of hypothesis surrounding it. And then also training at long muscle lengths, I guess, is where it's kind of eking down that potentially there's a little bit more to be had there. And I think also when you used to post your training, I'd seen maybe some sort of lengthened partials here or there. So I don't know if you want to talk about some of this research, which ones have you, you've seen kind of to be most interesting and if that's influenced your even programming for yourself or if you think it's a bit early and yeah, we can just dig into it. There's a lot. Oh, man, it's <laughs> definitely, definitely influenced my training. Um, I am absolutely, and since I've seen this research coming out, um, been doing things that kind of exist across the spectrum. So, um, sitting into the bottom position of a, you know, the stretch position of an exercise for a little bit longer, that's a potential application. Um, changing the modality or the positioning of an exercise so that there is a larger amount of tension supplied when you're in the lengthened position. A really simple application if someone doesn't kind of understand what that would be is just like really easy. A dumbbell lateral raise, you know, when your arm is down at your side, it's in line with gravity. There's there's literally no tension. You're just holding something in your hand, right? And then you get an increase in tension as you get to the point where the, the fulcrum is the furthest distance from your body, right? Where you're actually holding your arm straight out to the side. But unfortunately, with a free weight, you know, that's when you're, you know, now your medial delta is maximally shortened, at least in the context of the range of motion of a typical lateral raise. So the tension is only there in a shortened position. But if you do a cable, now there's tension immediately when you start to to lift. So you're potentially getting a better stimulus because in a more lengthened position on, on the delt, you know, you have tension supplied from the cable because it's not, you know, a straight down gravity free weight stimulus, right? So that's a very, very simple way to do it. Of course, there are, you know, other ways you can do it. You can perform a lengthened partial range of motion with the free weight. Like for example, although going all the way back to pumping iron, uh, doing Arnold Schwarzenegger doing flies where he doesn't come all the way up because he doesn't feel any tension at the top. You know, um, there is literally just trying to stretch, you know, which I think there's, uh, probably more evidence now with that Warnicke study that we kind of started with. Um, and there's also just the, I would say the more complete principle-based understanding of why on average, uh, full range of motion training seems to elicit greater hypertrophy. I think with some of these studies where we've compared full range of motion to partial range of motion at shortened length to partial range of motion at, at longer lengths, it starts to show that it, a, a large part of the effect of why uh, long full range of motion training is, seems to be effective is because it includes that lengthened position. So 
I think it's important for us to understand that we might be getting very excited about these findings, but for the average person who trains with a, a fairly high variety of exercises, aka an intelligent bodybuilder in my opinion, especially if you contrast it to say like a strength strength athlete, but if you have a fair amount of exercise selection and you train with a full range of motion, you might already be getting the majority of benefits from this. So that's kind of me being the you know, the shitty skeptic to kind of kill all the hopes of this, this podcast being interesting to anybody. But I think it's an honest <laughs> and important thing to say. Um, however, on the counterpoint of that, if you think about certain exercises and certain muscles that rarely get trained at long muscle lengths, or at least with a high amount of tension, it might unlock some opportunities. So, so one of the things for me is that I was thinking about it. I, I don't do cable lateral raises that much, you know? So what I have started doing in my training is that my lateral raise variations, I'm pulling across my body or from behind my back doing variations where I'm trying to have uh, tension immediately supplied. I'm putting the, the cable at the height of my wrist. So there's pretty much an immediate and you know nice application of tension when my delta is in the most stretched position it can be in. Um, and I'm figuring, you know, I've never really done this before, at least not consistently, you know, I'll rotate a cable lateral raise in, but previously with kind of my awareness of, of the, my lack of awareness of this literature, I never really thought about it. You know, I pretty much interchangeably used a dumbbell lateral raise or a cable lateral raise. And when I think about it, there's probably a lot more time spent doing dumbbell lateral raises than there were cables. Uh, so now I'm actually thinking about, okay, well, how do I get myself into kind of this more stress position, apply a cable. If I'm going to use a dumbbell, I'm actually doing it kind of like sideways on an inclined bench, just so there's a little more tension at the bottom. I'm experimenting with that. Um, and I'm just thinking about that concept of, okay, yeah, sure. I always train a full range of motion, but are there certain muscle groups that haven't benefited from uh, that full range of motion to the full extent that they might have now that we understand why full range of motion is important? So um, at risk of discontinually monologuing, if the reader is not, or if the listener is not aware of what the hell I'm talking about, there's a number of key studies that have come out. Um, two that are a little more conceptual, and then two more recent ones which are a lot more applied, where they just compare different exercise variations that I think are are worth talking about. Steve, you're you're probably aware of these, so if you know I go on and even when you want a specific point, you just let me know. Okay. Um, but yeah, probably the the first that I became aware of was by Pedrosa and colleagues, and. This was a study where they compared multiple groups. So they had a group training at full range of motion on leg extensions. Uh, they had a group training with partial range of motion at the bottom and then partial range of motion at the top. Those are probably the three most important comparisons. And they looked at quadricep hypertrophy. Uh, and they specifically found that training at the lengthened position, so kind of doing like the bottom half of a leg extension, if you will, uh, resulted in more hypertrophy of the quads than uh, doing it in the shortened position. So this is kind of the first time we were like, hey, not all partials are bad, which I think is pretty cool. Um, and they looked at multiple different sites. Uh, so they looked at both the rectus femoris and vastus lateralis, and they looked at um, more proximal and more distal sites to see if that differed. But essentially, it was just a kind of a clear home run for the not only the full range of motion like you'd expect, but even favoring actually the long muscle length position leg extension. So I think, I think Steve, that was the first study that really kind of made this very obvious to me. There were others before that, but it was the first one where I was like, oh, wow, 
like within the same study, you could make these comparisons. You didn't have to connect between different studies and, and you saw pretty convincing evidence that, you know, Hey, you know, that's probably what's doing the majority of the magic. And I think, um, I think for me, that's kind of what put the concept on the map. Um, and one other disclaimer I should say is I think sometimes I get positioned as this like kind of guru knows all the research, you know, bodybuilding science guy. But I think the best way to think of me is I am a sports scientist. So I focus on applied outcomes that are relevant to the sports I'm interested in, specifically physique and strength sport. So I have a relatively broad, but not incredibly deep focus. Um, so like, for example, I'm, I'm not a biomechanist. I'm not Andrew Vygotsky, right? Um, and I'm also not a muscle physiologist. I'm not, I'm not Keith Barr. So there are certainly things that I know enough about to know that I don't know enough about them, right? So, so for example, um, there are some caveats to this. Uh, you can put a muscle into too stretched of a position to where you actually negatively impact the cross bridging of myosin and actin. This is something that's a foundational concept in exercise science. And the, the point where that occurs is different per muscle. So some muscles, you can't effectively put them in that position and you don't have to worry about it. But then you might also not be able to stretch them enough so that there's that tension stimulus at like the sarcomere level. So I'm not actually aware of all the various muscle-specific characteristics of where this will and won't apply. I am aware that we have that Pedrosa study looking at the quadriceps. Uh, and then we had a very similar follow-up study that kind of did the same thing uh, by Sato and colleagues looking at uh, the biceps, uh, elbow flexors. And they found essentially the same thing, except they didn't find a a benefit greater than full range of motion in the partial lengthened position, but they found the partial lengthened position uh, partials and the full range were, were similar. So it's been consistently found that in you know both upper body and lower body muscle groups, at least the biceps and the quads, uh, directly measuring this specific model of, of a study design uh, that, hey, it's probably that, that lengthened position uh, that is doing most of the benefit from a full, full range of motion training. Uh, but those are just two, I would say, like if you really want to get a concept of this, if you check out the Sato uh, and Pedrosa studies in 2021 that came out just last year, um, those are pretty convincing evidence, I would say, that, that that's a, like a key component to what's going on when you train at yeah. full, full range of motion. I think really well explained. And actually, yeah, those studies are really nicely comparative also for, and I guess you may have thought about this as well, Eric, in terms of with the Prejacal and with the uh, leg extension, neither of them are training the quad or the bicep, but like the longest muscle length of that muscle. So it's like, well, if they did this in like an incline, like dumbbell curl, or like a, I think it's the Bayesian curl or from behind the cable uh, kind of curl where you're getting more lengthened bicep position, or would a sissy squat be even better because that's getting crazy, yep. like lengthened position on the quad? That, I mean, nothing else can really achieve that. I don't know if that's something you'll actually, I think, um, I'm pretty sure Brad is working on a study on sissy squats versus leg extensions. I just don't know when it's, when that's coming. Uh. Yeah, one, one thing I do. So interesting thing, I had to figure out how do I do leg extensions uh, at home on a cable stack. And I realized, hold on, I'm actually doing a lengthened position leg extension when I do that. Because the way you do it for if you can imagine this as the listener, is you just set the cable at about hip height. 
And then you put yourself in like a standing leg curl position. You attach a cuff to your ankle and you do single leg leg extensions, basically extending into a standing position. So you're finishing each rep with your legs next to each other. And the start of the rep is basically you in a, in a leg curl position, right? So you're doing a standing leg extension. Um, that would basically be equivalent to if you could lie back on the typical commercial gym leg extension machine, which actually some home machines do allow you to do that because they are like the convertible free weight leg extension leg curl. Like actually Jeff Alberts, he, he can lie back when he does a leg extension. So I think that's a really practical way if, you know, you don't like sissy squats or they're not comfortable or you don't want, you want to be able to modify the loading a little easier. A standing uh, cable leg extension is a great way to go. Uh, or one of those plate loaded lying back leg extensions. So you're right. There are other ways to get even more stretch that I would love to see investigated. And that kind of leads nicely into um, two recent studies where instead of comparing partials at the lengthened or shortened position compared to full range, where they compared two different variations of exercises for the same muscle group and looked at differences in hypertrophy. And the, they're both by the same group. I think it's pronounced Mao. I'm not 100% sure on the pronunciation of that. So my apologies, but it's M-A-E-O. And the first one was greater hamstrings, muscle hypertrophy, but similar damage protection after training at long uh, versus short muscle lengths. And essentially what they did is they just compared a typical lying leg curl to a seated leg curl. And they found that for the hamstrings groups, all of the, uh, like the biarticular muscles grew more in the seated position. If you think about it, a seated leg curl is like the sit and reach tests that uh, you, you've done to test hamstring flexibility, or maybe you get taught at a PT, or if you're in the right country and you're old enough, you might've actually had to do as part of school, or you might've done in, in the military or a job. But anyway, so because you're in hip flexion, you're putting the hamstring on stretch. So training in that stretch position seemed to elicit significantly greater growth in the hamstrings. And it also, if you look at the findings of that study specifically on the hamstrings, it comports with this idea that when you put a muscle on stretch and train it, um, it does seem to elicit favorable hyper hypertrophy because we didn't see it in the short head of the bicep femoris, which is monoarticular. So that's the one muscle of the hamstring, or I should say one head of one of the muscles in the hamstring that doesn't cross the hip joint. And another thing that a lot of people don't talk about in that study is that the sartor sartorius actually grew more in the lying leg position. So if you think about the sartorius, it's actually a really unique muscle. It's kind of cool. If people don't know what it is, that's the kind of the strap-like muscle that when you kind of kick your hips back, you can see that nice line separation between, you know, the, the edge of your, your teardrop and your hamstring and your adductor. Looks great if you know how to pose. Um, that muscle is one of the, I think it might be the longest muscle in the body. And it attaches, it's a unique muscle because it does hip flexion and then knee flexion. So it, that, that's not a normal combination. And we often think as bodybuilders like, oh, I have quads and I have hands. Yeah. But this is one that, you know, it doesn't really fit into those neat, nice. Uh, uh, it's, it's not part of the hamstrings, but it is a knee flexor, although relatively weak one. But it's also hip flexor and it attaches on the front of the hip. So if you want to put it in a more stretched position, you have to do a lying leg curl, right? So in the lying leg curl where the sartorius is more stretched, we actually saw that grew a little more. So I think we, you have to have a more complete understanding of functional anatomy so that you don't misapply some of these concepts. Like you could be someone who goes, I'm never doing a lying leg curl again. You know, leg curls are for hamstrings. I want them to be bigger, only going to do seated. And then you go like, oh, my sartorius wasn't popping as much, you know, last season. 
I mean, that sounds like a, a minor concern. Like, you know, we don't typically have like a gracilis and sartorius day, <laughs> but I mean, you do see it. And I think it does have a measurable impact on how good your legs look. And I think if you were to take a very black and white application of some of this research, it would just be like, well, I'm always going to do the, uh, you know, the, the seated version out, the studies out. So that, that study specifically, uh, I think kind of really shows this, this concept in a more applied manner where there's these two machines typically in most commercial gyms. And you're like, oh, I'm probably going to choose that one now if I'm, if my main goal is to try to, you know, increase the, the tension that's applied to my hamstrings and hopefully get a little more growth out of it. Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with the plan? Then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change. Sign up today and let's revive stronger. I think um, when I was doing my research for this, I came across a comment from Andrew on that study. Uh, you may have spoken to him about it. I'm not sure, but you talked even earlier about how different muscles have like their like tension relationship in that you could be so lengthened that it now isn't maybe providing as much tension. He said differential optimal lengths between the three biarticular heads and thus potentially force outputs during the movements could make it more complicated. So he was just kind of talking about the fact that there's three heads and like they're not all like it's like you said it's not like now see the leg curls that kind of fallacy of this is the perfect movement so actually there might be something the the lion leg curls is better at it might under like it might fundamentally if you could only pick one be the lesser choice but it might be better at other things that we're not kind of necessarily know enough about just yet 100 percent. and i actually think that the second study by the same group illustrates that exact point Steve. And that's, that's one on the triceps. And what they compared was uh, a tricep pushdown versus a overhead cable extension. So, you know, your arm behind your head, pulling a cable that's behind your back. And what you'd expect for those who, who aren't aware, the long head of the triceps is also a shoulder extensor. It crosses uh, the, the shoulder joint as well as the elbow. So it's a biarticular muscle. So when you're in shoulder flexion, Flexion, excuse me, considering it's an extensor, it's in a stretch position, right? So you'd expect to have similar outcomes in all heads of the triceps, except the long head of the triceps based upon the hamstring study that we saw, right? It made a lot of sense. Sartorius grew more in the uh, lying leg curl, no difference in the short head and better growth in all the mono, sorry, all the biarticular hamstring muscles. Okay. So nice, clean, beautiful evidence base makes sense. We can make an infographic. We don't have to think too hard. It's great, right? Nice, clean story. Uh, but then this tricep study comes out and people get just their, 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 their jimmies in a bunch about it. And I've seen <laughs> takes on this study from uh, the whole, we have to throw it out because it doesn't make sense. Like how, how, how much arrogance does it have to be to when you see a, a study and it doesn't 
do what you think that you throw out the data instead of maybe consider that there's certain aspects of your hypothesis that, or that there's things we don't know in science. Right. Anyway, that's, that's a minor side point, but, um, but yeah, interestingly enough, all the triceps heads grew better in the overhead tricep extension, uh, in this more recent study by Mao. And that's thrown people for a loop. Um, I will note that the most, the largest group, uh, the largest, the largest gains that we saw in this study, uh, were in the long head. You saw a lower P value, higher percentage change and a higher, uh, you know, effect size, but there were still pretty robust changes, very low P value. I think it was like 0.002 and the two other heads of the tricep. And, um, importantly, this was in a, a within subject design. So it's really well controlled. You know, they were, you know, you're, you're not going to have different nutrition or sleep schedule for your two arms. Right. So I think we, we kind of have to really entertain the possibility that this, this actually happened and ask ourselves why, rather than go, it doesn't make sense. We're just going to throw out that study. Um, and big credit to, uh, Greg Knuckles for this, cause he's actually, this is in his research briefs that are coming out in the next episode, next issue of mass. So these, these aren't my thoughts, but he went through not only what, what did the authors suggest as a possible explanation for that, but also some of his thoughts and probably the most probable explanations that seem to make the most sense is that, uh, one, you're possibly putting yourself into a position where you're a little more occluded for all three heads of the triceps. So there's a hypoxic effect that could be enhancing hypertrophy. Uh, it's not that you're actually more occluded. It's that you're, you're now you're going against gravity to get blood into your arm. So it might be slightly more hypoxic. If you just think about, you know, the blood pressure, you need to actually get blood up into your arm while training. And another possibility, and this is kind of Greg's pet theory that he thinks is probably not likely, but possible is that because all three heads of the tricep, they share the distal tendon attachment, it's possible that by stretching one of them, the long head, there's some medial displacement of the other heads a bit, and they're actually medially getting some, some additional stretch, and you're actually seeing a slightly higher tension, even though you're not directly stretching them because they have that shared tendon. Um, I think if you ask Greg, he'd say this is a possible reach, but ultimately, like I said, we observed these pretty statistically solid differences in a within subject design study that even if they don't make sense when we kind of look at it through this functional anatomy lens, um, which I think there's a philosophical point to make here, uh, that we still have to, you know, value this empirical data. So the philosophical point is that there is more going on than we know. And anytime we take two reductionist of a standpoint when it comes to physiology, biomechanics, or any of the extremely complex dynamic systems that go on in the body. And we go, right, now we understand, you know, training at long muscle lengths. Like, like you said, you know, Andrew's comment, I can't touch it. You know, like Vygotsky knows his shit way more than, than I, I know enough to know that I shouldn't touch it. You know, <laughs> that, that there are depths to, 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 to biomechanics that, uh, that I, I can't get to. Right. Uh, the good news is I probably beat him on stage, so I'm still a better person. But no, in all seriousness, like he's, he's a very intelligent person. He's an expert in his field. And to fully understand some of these topics uh, or to think that we've got it all mapped out and that we can you know, reject pretty solid empirical findings, I think that's a mistake. I think definitely we should wait for replication, of course. I think we should um, you know, think about what could be going on. But Ultimately, this is a relatively new area of research. We don't understand all the moving parts, um, no pun intended. And 
we need to just kind of be patient until we have a more complete understanding of these, uh, of all the things that are going in here. But I, I wouldn't say that that prevents us from trying to apply some of these very translational studies. You know, in research, you know, I'll get hung up on somebody taking an MPS study or an EMG study and trying to apply it. But when you're actually doing, we're comparing two different protocols and we looked at hypertrophy, you know, like, yeah, give it a shot. We don't have to understand exactly why it worked, but you can certainly, you know, give it a go. That's the whole purpose of some of these applied studies. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And actually, it, it brings uh, me back to one of the, the podcasts I did with Brett Contreras, where he was, he kind of had all his, like, um, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was like a bunch of different points of how you assess whether an exercise is going to be good. It isn't just like biomechanics, isn't just EMG, isn't just like one cherry pick study and ignore the rest or what have you. Or even just like the bro in the gym where he's getting a good pump. It's kind of like you need to like take all of the, hey, an evidence-based approach essentially where you aren't cherry picking, mm. you're looking at everything as a whole. And I think that's very well said. And yeah, to ignore data, where it's basically ignoring data because it doesn't fit with your bias and it's a little bit more confusing yep. and these things and i feel and i appreciate your kind of humility there in terms of saying how you know what you don't know uh, this is something i've like again discussed with pascal a lot in terms of having that kind of imposter syndrome with some of these things where i'm like man there's just there's so much there i'm not even confident enough like some people are putting out messages and this is kind of i guess a different topic but on social media that are just so strongly saying and suggesting certain things that are absolutes and this is like why are you even doing this exercise like the the bro bodybuilders were wrong all these years it's like mm. well the bros have been proven right so many times also wrong at times but like yep. like the pump was one of them where like people just like the pump is nothing it's like well it might be something there there's at least some studies suggesting there might be something there or various other things like there's going to be a paper coming out on tilapia thinning the skin at some point i know it <laughs> <laughs> But you, yeah, you know where I, what I mean. Absolutely, hundred percent. And I think I think people struggle to understand the the, the limits uh, and the pros and the cons of anecdotes. Um, people tend to be either really too quick to embrace them or dismiss them, um, rather than kind of going like, okay, so so what can an anecdote tell me? You know, and if an entire population of bodybuilders is doing something, you know probably two things. One is not preventing them from achieving the level of success that we're currently observing, right? So it's not a complete like stop to muscle growth or getting leaner or whatever the context of the thing is. And then depending on how ubiquitously it's used, you also know it might be kind of a cultural tradition and that people are, so like you have to, you have to weigh both of those up, you know? Yeah. Um, and also when you have anecdotes where there are multiple people doing different things who swear by it, but getting to the same result, then you know that it's either they're both a little bit wrong and it does work for everybody, or that there are substantial individual differences to where that, that works for some people or that works for others. Um, but I think people tend to just want to lop off the whole bottom of the, you know, the evidence hierarchy and be like, yeah, anecdotes are trash. Um, and then sometimes they'll come to conclusions that are directly in the face of what we know really seem to be done by a lot of people and aren't preventing success. Uh, and I think that's, you can reality check some data that way, but I don't think you can go so far as to look at a relatively unexplored new area of research that is on a nuanced topic. And, you know, if your pet theory doesn't align with it, just be like, nope. Yeah. So yeah, I totally agree. 
and something else I guess to consider with these is that uh, obviously there's there's a handful of studies and they all seem to be there, there's some disagreements but they're kind of moving down a certain line but there's some muscle groups that haven't been looked at at all so like the back as a whole mm-hmm. hasn't been looked at do you think there could be or I guess I'd be it feels like a silly question now there could be differences between muscle groups but where's your kind of um, head at with that do you think it will apply fairly holistically yeah, I think there could be differences between muscle groups. You know, if we want to kind of go back to the triceps just for a little bit, a little bit, excuse me, there was another study that didn't find the same thing as Mao and colleagues, where they had a stretch position compared to a more traditional position. That was by uh, Stasinaki, if I recall correctly. And the, the degrees of how, how much, uh, elbow flexion there was, the starting position of the triceps in the Stasinaski paper was greater. And one of the possible reasons why we didn't see a better outcome in the triceps, especially the long head specifically in the Stasinaki study, but we did in Mao, is that perhaps the tricep was too stretched, you know? Um, and the, like, if, if you look at the actual protocol in Mao is they only came down to about a 90 degree you know, Ingle said like a, you know, a right angle in their arm in the stretch position for the triceps. So if you were to come maybe all the way down, maybe that's too stretched of a position while also be in shoulder flexion for the long head of the triceps to get a benefit. And I just simply don't know the equivalent of what is too stretched when we start to leverage this for various muscle groups. And some of the more complex muscle groups, I mean, we're, we're talking about, you know, the quadriceps, the triceps, uh, the biceps and the, uh, the hamstrings. Some of those are reasonably complex. They have a mixture of, you know, monoarticular and uh, biarticular muscle groups. They've got, you know, different heads. They've got shared attachment sites in some places and not others. Um, but yeah, if we talk about a muscle like the latissimus dorsi, man, that's got, I mean, it's got, it's attaching all along your back. Uh, you could possibly have benefits in certain regions of it and not others. And I think, I think there's probably a little downside to giving it a go and trying to figure out a position where you're in, you know, a relatively stretched position with your lat and and trying that. I'm currently doing that kind of the same principles I was applying to like that cross body lateral raise. I'm trying to figure out, you know, where am I in a, a stretched position for the lat? Um, and actually shout out to Kasim. He had a little video. I think he titled it on a real, like, uh, explaining cast bullshit. And he yeah. just showed some basic ways like, okay, well, you know, if your lat is stretched, uh, then you should, it will limit your trunk rotation or trunk lateral flexion. So, you know, figure out a position where you're a little more stretched by, by testing your range of motion while, you know, making sure your, your hips staying relatively stable. And you might be able to find a good starting position. Uh, to, to create, you know, a cable lateral, sorry, a cable pull down or a cable high row type of deal. And I think that's great. You know, that's a very good example of not needing to open PubMed for getting all the answers, but opening PubMed, understanding the, the principles of a study, and then taking some, you know, basic applied principles of anatomy and going, okay, how can I translate this to uh, another muscle group? And I think there's nothing wrong with that. Um, to be clear, I think worst case scenario, you might get, you know, like a similar outcome, like in that Stasinaki, Stas, Stas, I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong, but Stasinaki tricep study, it wasn't like it grew less because it was overstretched. You know, if you're still putting yeah. forth a similar effort in training, similar number of sets, um, I, I doubt, and it's not like you're, you're in that stress position the whole time, you know, you're, you're getting out of it eventually, yeah. and then you're getting more actin myosin and cross bridges. So I think there's a relatively low chance of experimenting with this and hurting your gains 
right? Um, but I, I, do, I would really like to get more biomechanists into this conversation who have a specific understanding of some of the underlying physiology of, okay, which muscles can effectively be stretched and which muscles do we have to worry about overstretching? And then at the mechanistic level, what is actually doing this? You know, what, what, what level, quote unquote, in terms of muscle architecture, is the stretch actually applying the tension we care about? Does it, how active does it need to be? How passive can it be? Um, you know, it's kind of, we, we started with kind of the, uh, the, the, the potential mechanism of all of this is that possibly it, it is just passive tension from stretching, you know, like weighted, weighted wings on birds or the orthotic device that Warnicky is still depriving me of so that I had bad calves in 2023. You know, if, if that stretch mediated hypertrophy uh, is a similar mechanism to what's going on in these studies using, you know, a full range of motion, or at least part of the story, uh, then it may not be as big of a deal that we're getting to that position where there's, you know, less cross bridging, but I don't know. And I, I think we need to understand more about muscle specific effects and the underlying mechanism, but I, I'm, I'm not discouraging researchers from doing more just head to head comparisons of exercises. Cause at the very least, I mean, like these studies have probably changed the usage that these seated leg curls that most people just feel are uncomfortable and don't like, and I'd rather just lie down and do it. Um, <laughs> I, I'm I'm sure gym owners are, are wondering like why these guys with glasses who lift weights because that's all of us <laughs> evidence based lifters right have all of a sudden just left that lying leg curl and all now, now just doing seated leg curls right or why why there's this revival of, of uh, overhead tricep extensions yeah. so I, I think that's that's changing practice probably for the better and there's nothing wrong with that but I think we also need some of that deeper mechanistic work yeah. And actually, on a related note, they did actually, um, you probably saw the 1D et al 2021 loaded interset stretching. They yes. stretched the pec on the cable machine. So I guess, uh, and they saw better growth through kind of having that 30 second in interset stretch on the cable machine. So there's there's possibly something there for the pecs as well. So Dante least, Trudell is happy. Yeah. Yeah. This is the, the dog crap, the footsie seven, like there was all the, the stretching going on there. So yeah, again, the bros, seemingly there's something there that, that they might have had. Um, and I guess actually it leads on to a conversation with like muscle damage um, because mm. like I was, as an example of, I, I've been doing the, the pull around that Kasim kind of advised for the, the lats, but I also tried one, it's kind of holding a cable stack and then using my torso to stretch the rear delt basically as much as possible. So I was like in a horrible stretch and then coming across my body and then my rear delts were just like, I never got them that sore before. They're like sore for days and blown up. Um, but it's like, you have to be careful when incorporating some yeah. of these stretch positions, I guess. And how much is too much? Is there kind of a, a sweet spot where you kind of want to mix some lengthened and less lengthened positions into your program so you're not kind of overdoing volume or you're getting a, a better mix whilst you're still managing to train? I don't know if you have any thoughts surrounding that. <laughs> I do have thoughts on that. And yeah, the I think the the... The basic take home, and we have multiple studies showing this through various means, is that um, when you have a high degree of tension at a long muscle length, we see an increase in muscle damage. This is not to say that you don't acclimate to that, that the repeated bout effect doesn't apply in the situation. It does. Um, but especially considering how new these training techniques are and that it opens up kind of Pandora's box to all these various uh, variations of exercises, they're probably going to get rotated in. And I think people do need to be aware and think about programming and sequencing with different exercises. So like, for example, if you've got RDLs coming up on, you know, Thursday 
and you hear this podcast and you go, actually, I want to switch from, you know, lying hamstring curls to seated. And you do the same RPE, the same number of sets. And you do that two days prior on Tuesday. Let's say your two leg days are Tuesday, Thursday. You will probably be sore going into your RDL session, which I mean, like you're probably okay, but you'd prefer not to be right. You know, uh, just like that RDL makes you sore for a long period afterwards. I remember the first time I rigged up that that standing leg extension, my rec fem was sore for like a week and a half, you know, and that's because for 15 years, I've been just doing typical seated leg extensions, right? So uh, that negatively impacted, I didn't really want to squat, even though the rec fem isn't doing a whole lot. Like it, my, whole, my quad feels sore, like your rec fem is like smack in the middle of it. So my quadricep training definitely took a little bit of a hit. Uh, in that week. And I, I wasn't anticipating that, you know, I just was like, okay, it's a leg extension. I've done that. I've extended my knee before. No big deal. So I, I do think that um, when you start implementing these, if it's in a, a rotated fashion, so you've lost some of that repeated bout effect, or if it's the first time impl implementing it, I would probably do maybe two thirds to half the plan volume that you want to get to. And I would probably, you know, drop your proximity to failure back a couple reps and just get acclimated to it. Um, you will probably still get a stimulus from it because it's so novel. Like, like if you're worried about creating that much damage, don't worry about, you know, missing out on a, a microcycle of, of stimulus because it's going to be there. And if you do go after it, then it's going to kind of get in the way of everything else. So I think um, if you're doing, you know, lengthened position, high tension exercises, uh, you want to think about, all right, when's the next time I'm training that muscle group? And then I should probably have at least a day between those. Um, but I have been surprised at how well I've acclimated to it. Like I basically alternate for my, like my shoulders and my lats, uh, being in a, a stretched or non-stretched position exercise, but I'm not like avoiding the stretch position. I wouldn't say I'm doing like shortened partials. I'm just not doing a purposely stretched position. So like, for example, I have like a cross body lateral raise, and then I might have like a single arm shoulder press the next day, you know, and like, I'm not coming all the way down to here or anything like that. Um, and then for the lat, I might do like, for example, an upward reaching, like kind of high row lat pull down, single arm kind of hybrid. And then the next time I train my lat, it'll be like a cable row, you know? So it's, it's nothing that's, uh, I'm not like avoiding a stretch position. Um, and I don't think so that's, that's part of your question. That's, that's kind of how I think about the sequencing. Um, you also have to think about how that interacts with proximity to failure and volume. So, right. Basically you're just trying to take a look, you know, you set up your days, you choose some exercises that you want to play with. Um, don't go crazy with this buffet because it'll be too much to manage at once. Like choose a couple exercises that you want to implement. So you want to start doing, you know, a standing cable leg extension and you want to do a cross body lateral raise. One delt exercise, one leg extension. Figure out, look at your schedule. All right, where do I need the most recovery on my quads and my delts? Like, okay, let's say you're a power builder. You've got a big bench day, you know, not like the medial delts are a major player there, but you probably want relatively fresh delts going into, you know, a bench press, right? Same kind of thing if you've got squats. So that would be my basic mm -hmm. advice in terms of days and sequencing. Um, and as far as uh, other aspects, I think it just comes down to, did I, I cut out you, for you? I lost you for like two minutes. <laughs> I two got minutes, you, goodness. Or maybe not even two minutes. I got you at Power Builder. Okay, Say you're a Power cool. Builder. Sweet. I, I still recorded it, so I'm just going to keep going. But just so you know what I said, <laughs> I was saying that, you know, if you're a power builder and you're implementing like length and position delt work, move it away from bench. And if you're doing, you know, length and position, like quad work, move it away from squats. But anyway, 
So those are the, the kind of the main considerations from a sequencing perspective. And then also when you introduce these exercises, just give yourself that chance to build up the RBE, that re repeated bout effect, you know, relatively low volume, relatively low RPE. And then you can just take a week or two to, to acclimate to it. I think those are the key things. Um, another part of your question, Steve, was, is there potential benefit of training in the shortened position? And I would say uh, right now, there's no evidence to suggest it's better. There's only evidence to suggest it's worse. Um, there are differential effects from a regional hypertrophy perspective. So when they measure proximal versus distal hypertrophy, so basically close to the attachment versus further away from it, or rather I should say the origin. So uh, you typically see more proximal muscle growth or closer to the origin when you're doing uh, these shortened partials, right? Um, however, like you go, oh, cool. Then I, I want all my muscle groups to grow. I should do that. But that is also seen in the lengthened position. So like that's where the muscle growth does occur, but it's a similar amount to if you did a full range of motion or the lengthened position partial, and you're not getting that distal growth that you see in the full range of motion or lengthened partial position. So if you really needed to, like if you were thinking about, oh man, I have a lot of damage or, you know, there's individual differences in damage responses. Some people, they do RDLs twice in their life and they're never sore from RDLs again. Um, like I'm someone who's probably on like a standard deviation or, or, or two down from how much soreness do I experience? I think that's probably partially genetic and partially that I have done just a lot of relatively high frequency, uh, training. Um, and I know other people that kind of, no matter, they, they, they do a lot of high frequency training. They train a similar style, they got years under their belt, but they still get noticeably sore, even if they've got, you know, three or four times a week frequency for a muscle group when they do certain exercises. Like every time they do RDLs, they can feel it for two days. If that's you, uh, then it might be worth considering, like if you're trying to get your volume to a certain place, throwing in some shortened partials in that period where you're still recovering. It probably won't meaningfully add to that damage and it will be, albeit less optimal on a per set basis as far as stimulus. It's useful uh, you know, volume that's doing something that won't eat into your recovery demands. So I could see some scenarios and some programming situations where you want to have some stimulus, but perhaps, uh, you know, not that much damage from it. Or maybe you actually don't want distal growth in, in a given muscle group and you only want to see proximal growth. I can't think of many situations where that would be the case. And I don't think you should be trying to achieve that degree of fidelity of regional hypertrophy. I think that's that's largely a fool's game. But uh, I think you could make an evidence-based argument as to like, look, I really like how my, my teardrop is, but I really want the top portion of my quads to be you know, bigger. So I'm just going to do partial. I mean, I don't know. I'm pulling at straws here, but that's potentially, uh, you know, a viable application. Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though. It's reality and we know how to do it. And we will help you achieve this. The mini cup movement is an eight week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You'll receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the 
the mini cuts so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The mini cut movement is open 24 seven. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together. No, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, it's fun. You have obviously worked with hundreds of clients and I have a large amount who from like an RDL or a hip hinge, they get sore for like at least half a week to a week. And I'm like, man, I just, me personally, I don't often actually get sore from that movement. And so I'm probably more on the, the side where you are, but it is balancing that kind of, uh, I guess in some instances, balancing that stimulus to fatigue trade-off, basically like yeah. some of these movements have like a huge raw, just magnitude of stimulus coming in. But then that also leads to these downsides. And it's just balancing that. So like either through volume or I guess you mentioned like uh, RPE or RAR, maybe you can just leave more like taking an RDL to a naught reps in reserve for that person to, who gets like wildly sore, maybe never like something they want to approach. Maybe they're always leaving a couple in the tank. Otherwise they're just like blown out for like a week or two. Absolutely. Yeah. Th those are, when we look at like, what are all the variables that seem to uh, modify the damage response? It's, it's volume. Obviously you do more work, you're going to be sore. And then it is, um, People often say it's the eccentric, but I think it really just comes down to the fact that the eccentric is typically where you're in that lengthened position. And if you think about the RDL, you're in a lengthened position when the load is the highest, when you know the, uh, the, the load is the furthest from your body. So yeah, when you think about exercises that do like heavy dumbbell flies or uh, you know an RDL, um, so those two things, lengthened position and the level of tension that occurs at that point the total amount of work you're doing, and then also how close do you push it to failure or afterwards? You know, if you're doing like forced reps, that that can really make you sore as well. So those are the three like modifiable factors. And those are great things to consider um, when you are looking at like, okay, well, how would I sequence a week and where do I need to be fresh and where do I have, you know, ample time to recover? Like if you're someone who takes the weekend off and the last day of training is Friday, you can dump a lot of those variables into your Friday session. Um, so yeah, that that's, or, or you could also alternatively have them on Monday after you've been fresh for two days, but then you just got to think about, okay, well, Tuesday needs to be a relatively light day in the grand scheme of things, or at least for the specific muscle groups that I've, I've put through those, uh, you know, the paces. That's uh, some of this discussion aligns with what I was thinking with the, the calves and kind of putting them in that device. I imagine you'd kind of want to periodize that so that there's some adaption taking place because I can only imagine the amount of soreness you'd have through your calves when you use that for an hour, like for six, uh, the, like, uh, six weeks, like the initial kind of muscle damage and everything that must be going on. I don't think I'd even be able to, they kind of walk. <laughs> I don't even know how they got around. They must have wheelchairs for the first week. <laughs> Steve, I want to know. But Warnicky <laughs> will not send me this device. Okay. So everybody, I want you to find this paper. All right. I want you to click on the corresponding author and just send them. <laughs> just subject line should be send Helms the device. And then in the subject, and then in the, the like body of it. So why do you want Helms to not have big calves? Question mark. And then uh, I, I believe we can do it as a team. So Warnicky <laughs> calves. That's the new hashtag. All right. And then you can sell a program like the calf, like grow your calves by 15% protocol in six weeks, whatever. I'm surprised someone's not already selling that, to be honest. I'm it's telling you. No brainer. <laughs> we just need a, a cheap like manufacturer to make a really bad, like like $2 device that we sell for 50 bucks. I'd <laughs> I'm telling you. Eric, 
final question. Is there, you mentioned a few limitations to some of these studies, which I think really important in terms of just like not ignoring things and taking things holistically and there's this things we don't know. Are there any other limitations? Like I, I know quite a few of people within them, I think maybe all of them untrained, at least the majority of them are untrained. Do you think that yes. could impact the results? I absolutely do. Like, um, and that, that this, this is almost just a restatement of that kind of uh, terrible, boring, nothing works, uh, <laughs> skeptic researcher comment that I made at the start where, hey, you know, it's really interesting to understand why full range of motion training seems to provide better results on average pretty consistently. And that most likely uh, a large part of that is the fact that it trains your muscle at a long muscle length. Um, but for everyone who's listening to this podcast, you're, you're probably not doing quarter squats and, you know, quarter benches and, and 21s anymore. You know, like you might've done that at the start, like most of us, but you've probably been training with a full range of motion. I mean, this is revive stronger. This is like a bodybuilding podcast for, for, I would guess years. So I don't think you should expect to see the kind of magnitude of changes that you're seeing in these studies, which you're right, Steve, largely on untrained individuals uh, to manifest. And that's a general statement about any research when you're applying, um, you know, things that you see on untrained participants to trained participants. Uh, I would not suggest that we should throw out these studies because they're not untrained individuals. Um, sometimes you can look at studies on untrained individuals and make some pretty strong inferences because they allow over a short period you to see these these changes. And, you know, if, if there's a meaningful difference between them, you'd expect there would also be a meaningful difference in untrained or sorry, well-trained people, but just the magnitudes would be a lot less. And I think that applies here as well, uh, but probably even more so um, for, you know, people who have specifically tried to train through a full range of motion and thereby by proxy also in those lengthened positions. So it's, um, I think it's definitely something to experiment with. And I think if you think about your own training habits, like in my case, I've done years of seated leg extensions. And like, I think that's probably the most common one. If you've never put your rectus femoris in a stretch position and done a leg extension, hell yeah. Give standing, you know, leg extensions a shot. The only downside is it's annoying because it's unilateral. So it takes twice as long. But um, if that ain't worth having a nice, you know, triangle shaped hunk of muscle in the center of your quad next time you get lean, <laughs> then this is not the podcast for you. you know? <laughs> so, so yeah, give that a shot. I think um, some of the other, other things we suggested, you know, like if you've done habitually dumbbell lateral raises, try cables for a while and just see if you notice after, you know, six months or something like that, any kind of uh, noticeable changes. I think for some exercises, you're just not going to see a huge benefit. Like I think most people, if you do barbell squats or hack squats or leg press and you go relatively deep, there's probably not a lot left on the table for like your, your vast thigh muscle groups, you know? Um, but I think for some of these other muscle groups where we have never really put them in those, these types of positions, uh, just because of the traditional equipment variation yeah. or preferences we have, I think that's definitely worth experimenting. I, if I can, I can bug you for a, if you still got time, I just, something else has popped all into time it. in the world for you. So, well, actually, one question was with the leg extension standing, do you think a sissy squat would provide a similar sort of stimulus if someone didn't have like the attachment to need to put the, for their standing Absolutely. leg extension? Okay. Absolutely. Cool. I think some people just struggle with the uh, the coordination and then yeah. figuring out how to load it. Um, I remember during, during lockdown, I was actually doing like BFR uh, sissy squats. 
Um, some people actually find that the loading is too much for their knees. And big shout out to the late, great John Meadows. If you've ever seen uh, his his ver version where you actually have like, you know, like the rings or like the TRX attachment that you typically see at gyms, yeah. you're holding that and you're at a much more shallow incline. So your body's almost parallel to the ground. And then you're just kind of rocking back and forth, getting into a deep position under your toes and then pushing away on the floor. I think for some people, the sissy squat can be a little too aggressive for the first time. And that's a great way to do it. And then you can just kind of alter that incline over time um, yeah. just by changing the height of those. Um, and then get, get onto full blown, you know, holding a dumbbell on your chest kind of uh, sissy squat style. Yeah. Is that Absolutely. almost, is that the reverse Nordic where you're almost lying on the ground, like similar? Sort that of one idea. is, well, that, that one's basically like even harder because the okay. reverse Nordic, <laughs> yeah, like you're, you're basically bending back over your body. The one I was describing. I've never is, tried it. Yeah. So your feet are on the ground. If anyone wants to just Google uh, John Meadows Sissy Squat on YouTube, you can find it. Um, but it's, it's a lot easier because you're not vertical. You're, you know, you're, you're basically in the same position you would be if you were going to do a TRX row, but with your feet on the ground. So your knees are bent and then you kind of rock forward and then you rock back so that like only a small portion of your body weight is actually, uh, are you pushing away? So that would be where I'd start. But if sissy squats are way too easy, absolutely. You can do a reverse Nordic if you want, but you need to have the knee flexibility and comfortability. I've done those and you kind of have to put like a pad underneath your knees and then you basically lie all the way back until your butt's touching your heels yeah. and then knee extend yourself back into a kneeling position. It puts a lot of stress on your knees. Uh, you can feel it. But um, I still think it's safe. You just have to be prepared for it and yeah. have the strength and the flexibility and the comfort. Similar with the uh, machine sissy squats. I bought one of those during lockdown and they, they put a lot of strain on your knees after a while. The stretch is crazy and like, but uh, yeah, it's similar. You have to be careful with the dose. I guess with all of this, that's kind of a, tip, a big take home is like don't go crazy with the dose initially because the stretched ranges are, and I guess that's why a lot of people generally would stop a bit earlier because they don't want to get into that kind of injurious position it's like being careful with that um one thing and that's actually and, a really good point oh, i just want to kind of i want to back you up on that steve is, is do yeah. be careful with this folks like um we have end range of motions on joints for a reason <laughs> and uh typically when you see injuries it is at an end range of motion out of a joint with high forces uh high velocities are actually a big part of that as well so this is certainly less dangerous than like doing a hard cut in basketball and deciding that you want to keep your ankle turned the wrong way. But uh, like, I don't think anyone is going to have like immediate injuries or, or anything like that. But this is probably a higher risk of injury than the typical training you're doing. If you're going to be doing loaded, you know, stretch position and range of, uh, you know, motion for a joint. So just do take this seriously, dose it in, you know, give yourself multiple intro weeks and uh, limit the load and just kind of get your skill down and your comfortability first. I think that's um, probably can't be restated enough. And uh, have you tried any of the uh, Strive or Prime machines where you can select where it's hardest? Like you can make the length, the starting position or the ending position more challenging. Have you tried any of that kit? And do you think that stuff is, I don't know, kind of ahead of its time maybe for this sort of thing where you can actually prioritize, especially on like back movements. I think about it like a, a row machine, being able to prioritize where you're strongest and making it hardest there versus uh, kind of somewhere else. Do you think that has potentially more application or at least the, this could lead that way? Possibly. And that, that's, that's, like, that's, like, that's a related concept. And we've talked a bit about that where you're basically biasing the load and the length and position. It's, it's tough to know how important that is 
Um, so one of the things where I haven't gotten too excited about those machines uh, is that when you look at research on isokinetic dynamometry, which you, I'll explain what that is. You, you might not know, Steve. Um, if you've ever seen one of the, uh, they look like they're typically used for leg extensions, but they can be changed to multiple positions to isolate any joint in a laboratory setting. And they're isokinetic, so they move at one speed. So no matter how hard you kick into the pad or press down on the pad or curl against it, the machine controls the speed. So you can put forth maximal effort through the full range of motion. So you can effectively perfectly match like the, the, the force curve to the, to the muscle if you wanted. And you can make every single rep maximum effort from, from through every degree of the range of motion, or at least you can, you can encourage people to do that. And you can actually see the force curve and you can give them, you know, biofeedback. And you don't see like, like big differences in terms of the magnitude of, of hypertrophy observed when they do training studies with those versus traditional training that I'm aware of. So maybe it's just too much, you know, maybe, maybe that's just far too much and it would be good just to maybe bias the length and position and leave the rest of it alone. But I, I think it's an interesting idea for sure. I have limited personal experience with them. I'm aware that they exist, um, but I've only had access to them when like I'm traveling. So I'll play with them, you know, when I'm, you know, abroad, but I haven't really gotten enough time to uh, have clients who have access to them regularly to prescribe them or to personally, you know, have like a whole off season with them or anything like that. But I think there's, sure, there's potential there, yeah. but I think this comes down to, you know, how important is just simply being in the position with some degree of tension, or is it important to bias the tension in that position? And I think the findings are mixed. Like Pedrosa yeah. actually did find that you know, doing a lengthened position partial was better than the full range of motion. And I think that's, that's worth thinking about. Like, why might that be? Because the full range of motion contains the lengthened position, right? Well, then we have to think about effort, right? So if I spend all of my time, we'll just use the fly. So people can think about this in probably a more colloquial kind of way of thinking about it. If I'm doing my flies just in that, that bottom range of motion, right? And I just go until I hit failure and I drop the dumbbells on the ground, I've exerted all of my efforts in the lengthened position. But if I was to do that full fly and come all the way up, then I'm going to hit failure with a similar probably number of reps, but with that only being part of my efforts in that lengthened position with a lot of my other, you know, efforts being dedicated to potentially less stimulative range of motion. So those two things don't really add up. Like we have the isokinetic dynamometry, which doesn't really support that idea. And then we have the Pedrosa study. And then we also have some other studies where, you know, length and position and full range were similar. So ultimately, I this kind of goes back to me saying we need a little more research to understand what exactly is the triggering factor. Just being in that stretch position at all, what kind of dosage do we need? How high does the tension need to be? I mean, one thing I don't think we need to be doing is all of a sudden deciding that failure is the way to go, you know? So that's something I have seen. So for example, I actually talked to Berto about this because I noticed he was doing these like partials, the length and position failure. partials past failure on, on like a row. And I'm like, no, I agree. We need a high level of tension at that length and position, but, but why do we have to go past failure? You know, just, just alter the movement. Like, I don't yeah. think this necessarily changes our understanding of, of, you know, sure failure is fine, but we still want to think about it, right? Why am I doing six reps in a length and position to failure now? Because I learned a length in possession is good. I don't throw out the information I have on failure, right? So I think that's that's one thing to keep in mind is that some of the applications of this are, you know, have been kind of like that past failure 
you yeah. know, and, and I've played with that. I've tried it, but I'm also like, oh, now I'm really, really sore, of course, because I went past failure in the lengthened position. <laughs> Why did I do that? Because I saw it on, on Instagram and I'm, you know, even, even though I'm well read because I'm trying this new concept, I'm, you know, still yeah. kind of working through the practical application. And I think that's just something to think about for people that this doesn't change the rules, quote unquote, for, for how we would normally program. Yeah, I guess people might end up uh, doing it full ROM and then they're taking it to partials to like, I don't they might even take it then to partials to 3RR, but because you were doing full ROM before, you've actually gone to failure full ROM and now you're going to a 3RR or whatever it is on part. You're lucky if you're getting to a 3RR on partials, to be honest. Like how many reps can you really realistically get out? You're probably at one, two immediately. So you could even, exactly. like you said, program it separately or just program try it doing it partials uh, to your RAR pro or RPE. So that's very well stated. And yeah, if you were to take it to the really big extreme, it would be down to those like isometrics, just like holding, like don't don't even do your pull-ups, <laughs> screw pulling out of the chin above the bar. You just sort of start holding the bar and just stretch everything out for as long yeah, as you can. It's, <laughs> it's DC without the lifting. It's just the, the weight of stretching, yeah. right? And um, you know, the, the, the surprising thing was that when I first thought about that exact point right there, like if we, if we really went down the slippery slope on like a, a set of skis, full bore, and then jumped off the edge, we would just be doing length and position isometrics, right? Maximum effort and just, you know, how long do we go? I don't know until I can't <laughs> move, right? And I was, my first thought was, well, isometrics we know are worse than dynamic contractions. That's that that's settled science. And then I started like digging into PubMed. There's actually very little research comparing isometrics yeah. to other types of contractions. I found like an animal study and then some some systematic reviews that basically said we don't really have this data. And I was like, well, shit. It's one of those things that is evidence-based-y. You know, these things that we say are true that we actually really don't have a lot of hard hard science on. So I think people should just be aware that there's still a lot to do in this area. Yeah, I think that's well said because I, I remember, I think I, it wasn't even that long ago I did a post on it and I, I must have got it from somewhere, evidence base where I was like, I, I had some sort of reference for why dynamic contractions were best. And I don't even, like you said, it's not even, and when, so I heard, I think it was Milo Wolf, uh, if you've heard of uh, Milo, who yes. I think he's a coach for Stronger by Science now and he's doing his, I'm going to get him on talking about range of motion for hypertrophy because he's doing a, uh, his PhD in PhD that. PhD on it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he'd be great I think to he's, talk to. He's got a research grant, I think, to investigate kind of isometrics versus concentrics, dynamic contractions, eccentrics, everything. So, yeah, I'm I'm very excited for it. I think it's yeah for the for the people who have been doing this like decade plus, and we're looking for every little avenue, and we're excited for any little bit of gain. It's very interesting, but I think it's good of you a couple of times had that kind of skeptic scientist in terms of like, have you seen amazing results with what you're doing? You don't suddenly need to change your entire program. Maybe just implement a few things and be very careful about it. I think that's very well stated. So thank you so much for this time, for your time, Eric. It, it's been a fantastic chat. No worries. And I will say one final thing about isometrics, even though you're trying to get me off and you're like, listen, <laughs> I'm going to start my day. It's early morning here. Eric, you should go to sleep. But um, in the 60s, right around the time that steroids were taking off, there was a huge push for isometrics around the same time and it was kind of confounded and there was a sales pitch try isometrics and everyone was training with isometrics for bodybuilding for a while and i will point out that it didn't seem to catch on so you could argue maybe it was confounded by the fact that you know the gains people were getting were actually from anabolics but i think that was probably just the people marketing it <laughs> i think a lot of the people trying it 
were not. Anabolics were not that widespread at all at that time. So I would guess the vast majority of people who got marketed these bodybuilders who were newly trying anabolics while also doing isometrics and making great gains, they were trying that as natural athletes. And it just kind of petered out and isometrics never really took hold. And that's one of those situations where I think an anecdote can be useful to where if you had widespread adoption of something um, and it didn't seem to work, you know, like it just really didn't last at all. It may not be like the thing. It could be good. Don't get me wrong. But I just don't think it's a complete game changer. It's kind of like how we've had this keto revival. But anyone who's been around since the 90s, like the Atkins diet was huge. And we still had the obesity epidemic. So it's a, certainly a viable diet if someone wants to do it. But it didn't change the landscape of nutrition when it came out before. And neither did isometrics in the 60s. So take that for what it's worth. Yeah. No, I think that's well stated. That's very interesting. I wasn't uh, aware of that either. So, yeah, like I was saying, Eric, and uh, you should have your blue light blockers on. You're not going to have any good night's sleep now, but uh, <laughs> we, we'll have to do this again. I'm definitely going to get you back on, uh, even if that means I have to uh, have a later night. I'm definitely down for it because, yeah, on reflection, I kind of feel ridiculous that it's been this long since we chatted because uh, I just really enjoy digging into that brain of yours. And uh, I know the audience are going to really enjoy this. So thank you so much for taking the time. And we'll do this uh, much sooner than two years, more like four months, something like that. Uh, that would be amazing. So thank you so much, Eric, for taking the time. And uh, guys, uh, also thank Eric. <laughs> true pleasure to be on. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. And is there anything you want to let the listeners know about in terms of anything going on? I know you've got the, the lifting library and everything you've got over at 3DMJ. Is there anything particularly going on for you guys that you want to make the listeners aware of? And Mass, yeah, obviously, we, we, we kind of refer to Mass yeah, a few yeah, times yeah. and I'd highly recommend it if they want to dig into these studies. Like you guys do a fantastic job of doing that. Yeah, if, if, if you're interested in uh, in us, we, we actually have followed this line of research quite well in Mass. Almost every single study that we, actually every single study that I think we talked about today we have discussed in mass. So um, Greg has written a lot of those articles. I've written a couple, um, but um, Greg has, has definitely got his head around this and thought a lot about it. So if you want to read some pretty cool uh, takes on this stuff, consider a mass subscription. It's not free, but um, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. And then the other thing is, yeah, actually the lifting library is in our vault. And we just recently had another vault course come out and that is the revamp of uh, the recovery diet. And that's free. So anyone can can see that it's got kind of an updated take with um, some other conceptual stuff that I've talked about. It's a course that I that I give and it's short, easy access. And um, if you're wondering how to make the transition from contest prep to the off season, that very difficult transition and how to recover as efficiently as possible to get back to making gains while not making your next contest prep harder than it has to be, I think I would definitely recommend it. I can only highly recommend it not that i've seen it but i've spoken to i've probably spoken to you about it i've spoken to jeff about it uh, alberto about it the recovery diet i've done it myself or at least an iteration of the recovery diet i've tried to and with athletes and it's yeah been fantastic so i can only highly recommend that and i know it's coming to the end probably when this comes out at, at the end for a lot of people's seasons or at least nearing the end so yeah. that'll be the perfect time for people just to at least kind of look over it if they kind of uh, finish your contest prep in a month they can already start planning ahead so fantastic and that's amazing that that's free um, that says everything you need to know about 3DMJ that they're putting out the recovery diet, kind of something you guys conceptualized and came up with, but is imperative to kind of success as a competitor. The fact that that's free is amazing as a resource. So yeah, thank you for, for all of that. And guys, uh, we'll talk to you very soon. Take care.
So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Flor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can log your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're going to have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're going to go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're going to be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.